The following episode of The Trumpet contains a scene featuring explicit material. The Trumpet is not an explicit podcast, but the scene featured on this episode contains language or situations some may find objectionable. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to The Trumpet, the official podcast of Elephant Room Productions. I am, as always, your host, Robert Jean Pileccio, back after a very short hiatus. Uh, and joining me again is our fearless leader, Lauren M. Shover. Hi, everybody. And hearkening back to a very early tradition of the trumpet, we are joined this week by a four-legged furry guest. Um, Lauren has been kind enough to have me record in her home, where we are accompanied by... Uh, our her... company dog, we could say. Yes, our, <laughs> our company dog, Arrow. Um, not joining us is our company cat, Ginger, who is just feet away from me, but keeping to herself. So today we're going to be talking about something really exciting, an upcoming original project that Ooh. Elephant Room Productions is working on. Uh, but first, keeping in line with the previous trumpet episodes, I would like to talk to Lauren, not as our fearless artistic director, but as a playwright who participated in our most recent uh, ears reading. This is a play that is very near and dear to my heart because I have been involved with almost every, I think every iteration of it, workshop-wise. Yeah, in some so, kind of way. So, uh, can you please tell us a little bit about Captive? So, Captive is the first and only play I've ever written. I never really fancied myself a writer, but I had an inspiration and I went with it and it's turned into this thing. Um, when I first started uh, playing with the idea of writing a piece, I wanted to write something that would be bizarre to put on stage, something like scary. I thought about like zombie apocalypses and that kind of stuff of like being on stage and how to, how to do that. And um, with this idea, I went with more of the idea of um, when people are taken we see we tend to see flashes in movies of either the person's perspective that was taken or the um, taker's perspective, but we don't usually get that magical theatrical, long drawn out um, experience of the person's every moment of their every moment of feeling from the moment they're put in the room, uh, the panic they experience, the different defense mechanisms they might incorporate. And so I really wanted to show that on stage, and I wanted to really scare the audience by keeping the lights out, making us all feel this like visceral experience that we were involved in it too. So that's where it started, and uh, it's grown into this metaphor um, as I was writing it for uh, something that's really near and dear to my heart and interest, which is um, the struggle with addiction and drug use. And so it's kind of incorporated that and gone into this like huge metaphor and turned into something really really beautiful um so that's just like a little a little bit about captive it follows the the storyline of this girl alice who finds herself in an unknown place where she is restrained by a chain and uh completely confused as to where she is and she's visited by different people throughout the piece we also experience flashes of um of a, a different time for her, whether that be a reality, some people have seen it that way, or whether it be current, um, or whether it be some other kind of worldly time that she experienced, we get to see uh, her her day-to-day -day life as it relates to her state in this place. So yeah, that's just a little bit about it. 
And I really love this play. I've told you that every time we've gone through a new draft of it. Mm-hmm. When, how long have you been writing? I remember when we first read it, it was, uh, was it our first workshop weekend? Yeah, we did this cool little workshop weekend because we were just craving to do some art. And um, a bunch of us in the company tend to write stuff. So I think, think I might be the only person in the company uh, or in the company at that time who did not write stuff. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's okay. And um, and so we, we had a weekend where we all brought a new piece and we spent a certain amount of time on each one just giving each other feedback and reading through it, which was really awesome. It was a wonderful weekend. And um, this was one of them. So I think this was the first time that you guys had read this piece. And it was one act at that time. It was uh, completely different. My vision for certain characters have just like gone so far since then. So it's, it would be unbelievable to go back and read that version. Um, but yeah, that's when, it, that's when it was first introduced to you guys. What was most interesting to me about that weekend is that was during the very, very early days of the company when 60% of Elephant Room Productions lived with each other. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually, that's true. We, we were uh, roommates. Yeah, we, uh, so it was you, me, Phil, and Donovan, and uh, Chris and Emma would occasionally come down from New York or we would go up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, it was right at the beginning stages when we didn't really have a lot of workshops, we didn't have these readings, but it was just a matter of let's keep doing theater let's just keep throwing work out there original work or Absolutely. new work and constantly encouraging each other i think is really important because sometimes when you get in a company like ours um you spend so much time on these administrative roles that you lose sight of the fact that you're each wonderful artists at the same time and that's why you got involved in this and you each have talents in your own ways and so that was a wonderful weekend we had to um explore writing acting uh, directing, leading the group. Uh, we worked on other creative projects for advertisement purposes that weekend as well. So, um, so yeah, it was a wonderful time to really reflect on, hey guys, we're also talented people. We don't just make talented stuff. The other thing that's really cool about that is that, um, especially with Captive, but none of us, save for the playwright, really had any insight into what plays we were going to read that weekend. Everyone brought a, either a new piece or we reworked piece to the table and we all just dove into it uh, without knowing anything. And the reason I bring up um, us living together at the time is because I remember just seeing that, I've seen what you uh, lovingly refer to as director-gasms for <laughs> many times working with you when you're directing a piece or when you're working on a piece and you something clicks. Uh, I saw, I guess you would call them writer-gasms then, um, the reason I brought up us living together is because for about a month before this workshop, every time I would walk by the dining room on my way to or from work, you would be sitting there with a glass of wine in one hand, your computer open, a notebook next to you, and I would just see your hands just going on that keyboard, just <laughs> plowing through. And occasionally, like, you would touch base with me, uh, not giving me any details, because I, to be honest, I didn't really want details ahead of the mm-hmm. game. But you would touch base with me about how, what a new experience this was for you and how energized and charged up you were. So that was the first iteration of Captive. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, we did that workshop uh, that was just a, it was a, it was a reading. There, were, there wasn't a yeah, stage with casual. it. Yeah, um, We then did a more formal 
weekend workshop uh, with it partnered with uh, Phil Zechner's play Whispers. Yeah, and we also brought Cameron Dunbar from uh, California. He happens to be friends with a couple of our elephants, and he uh, he came. He was in town, so he directed the workshop weekend. We had um, wonderful actors like. Um, Kayla Grasser and Chris Anthony, as well as Kelly and Klaus, come in and um, professionally act in the piece. It was actually staged for an audience, which was a wonderful experience for both me and Phil. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think after that, there was... Um, I, I will count this. There was another reading we had um, at the Just Elephant the Reader room. House. Um, yeah. Another casual uh reading not a formal workshop but i think still probably helpful because this final uh, or not final this most recent um experience with it it went through even more changes mm -hmm. um and it was also probably I, I don't want to assume but probably daunting for you the first time this piece was ever out of your hands basically um with you not being present in the room with the reading so i guess i would like to ask how each of those different experiences through the mm -hmm. readings, the workshops, uh, and the years workshop, uh, how each of those steps in the process shaped this play, changed it, influenced it, changed it back sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think when I started writing, this is probably just out of my um, ignorance of being a, a writer, but um, I focused on the main character and I thought the story was hers and told it from that perspective and I wanted to... Um, keep the fear alive and then when it turned into a metaphor I wanted to make that very clear also and um, and that sort of shaped it at that point it was kind of this uh, singular thing and as I brought in other actors to read other characters it became more clear to me that I needed to focus on other characters as well and really um, form them and that's when this secondary slash debatably main character Michael came about and um, it's a really interesting flip at the end of um, who gets the happy ending and whose story is really being told here. And so his, his story in particular has, has gone very far since the first draft, um, which was great. It, it's interesting because there's also the character of Alice's husband, which was actually not very difficult for me to write at all. Being able to write the... Um, like the marital relationship they had with um, arguing and and joking around and and this like natural day-to-day -day life was pretty simple. So as far as Nick's character, I haven't made too many changes, but Michael was one that I really had to step back and focus on developing his character. So he wasn't just someone who was there, but he served a purpose. And I think his character has come really, really far. Oh, absolutely. Now. There, there's a particular moment, um, uh, not to give it away, but a very, very uh, key moment towards the end of the play that is now a completely different character mm -hmm. because of that change in Michael. And I, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That um, It's really interesting. Also, his, I think he's probably gone through the most changes oh, of uh, his his backstory how much we know about it how much we <laughs> don't know about, about it um his backstory has changed i think with every draft he's had a yeah. new um it, with more challenges and layers each time yeah it was kind of like i felt the need to include such a backstory for him in the beginning and then i realized that he was a tool in the play and i needed to use him correctly and by using him correctly i needed to change everything i'd done before and um 
it's also been this balance with, um, we're talking about drug addiction in this play, and I want it to scare the addicted. I want it to scare people into um, avoiding that or overcoming it, believing in themselves that they can overcome addiction, which is one of the toughest things a humankind mm-hmm. can go through and and overcome. And, um, and so... I, through my other drafts and through all the different workshops, I've had this constant struggle of, am I, am I making it sound too attractive in the way that I'm having the other characters portray this environment? And that's the idea, but you as the audience are supposed to say, oh my gosh, that sounds awful. They're clearly tricking her. But I didn't have that as clear in the first couple drafts. But giving Michael this life of this person who sees the truth and can combat what they're saying um, made made it make so much more sense. And so, um, so it was kind of finding this this magical thing within Michael, which was really really wonderful. Um, so to answer your previous question about how they've gone through how they've experienced changes, that was definitely one of the first changes of really focusing on the other characters, um, expanding the piece. Um, during the first couple of readings, a lot of people were saying, like, we want more. Like, we have these questions and we want some answers. It was, it was too open-ended, and, um, which I liked. I liked the mysteriousness of it, but some of it needed to be brought down to earth. And so um, expanding it into this optional two-act play, um, I say optional because as a director, I love the idea of an actor getting very, very tired and raw on stage by having to do an entire piece um, straight through. I love that but I understand that some people might not. So I put a little optional intermission in there. And, um, and so it's grown into this much longer piece with this um, full circle ending. Um, another problem that I, that I came across that was really helpful in some workshops is as someone who's, who is, like I said, not so used to writing, but used to directing and acting, um, I, I mean, I think every writer, I think it's well known that every writer writes themselves into something. They write themselves their opinions, their values, um, maybe their voice into somewhat of what they write. And um, I had the struggle of seeing characters portrayed one way in my head and having them read differently um, in workshops. And it was kind of eye-opening to the idea of there's so much that a director will catch on to, but how can you kind of steer them in that direction without overdoing stage directions, without telling them exactly what to do, without... um, putting too many descriptive words in the character uh, description in the beginning of making it, you know, a forceful way of making this person act unnaturally, but, um, but still trying to get that different type of personality out in the character. And so that's something I, I definitely dealt with with um, Alice's character as well as Michael's character, and it has, it has adapted since, and I think it's a lot clearer now. I think one of the, one of the biggest changes that, I'm sure was developed by you hearing it multiple times. And this is a character that is probably most close to me uh, is the character of the doctor Mm -hmm. who I personally played the doctor the first two times we worked on this. Um, And when we first read it, you told me that you could see the doctor is either male or female, but we wanted to, you wanted to hear it as a male. And after doing it a little bit, you, you started telling me, well, I, I guess it works as a male character, but I'm really for I'm casting still, purposes. Let's just have you read it. <laughs> yeah, I'm still I'm still hearing it as a female character, mm-hmm. and for me that was kind of hard to get my head around just because I had played it. Of um, course, 
and it was really in the it was really interesting with this last reading is this is the first time the play has been read with a female playing the doctor yeah um coincidentally enough we had i believe three actors uh involved in this reading who had done a previous workshop of it uh but two of which playing different, different characters. characters i was i was reading nick this time and kayla who read alice was reading the doctor mm -hmm. and can you just tell me how that gender flexible character came about and yeah i um i don't want to give too much away about the plot but the doctor is uh rather important um kind of like the puppet master of the whole thing and um and so for me it didn't need a gender you know it was just the doctor it didn't matter if it was read by a man or a woman in the beginning and and then as it started to develop um and i think all of the characters i mean the idea with addiction is it can happen to anyone i'm not trying to say it can just happen to women right of course not and so i would love to be able to have this play be gender optional all over the place but um but as it is written the main character is a female and so as i continued writing i realized for this doctor to be this puppet master um they're the puppet master of alice and so therefore they should match her gender so i think um an idea that i'm toying around with and i've always been toying around with is the idea of if the main character is played by a woman, that the doctor is played by a woman, and if the main character is played by a man, then the doctor is played by a man. Ooh, that's, I think that's really interesting. That kind of idea of it, it's they're subconscious, you know, it's an extension of their subconscious. It's not this other being, and so therefore they would be similar in that way. Well, just kind of a funny insight on that. I think that this uh, has clearly been working in your mind for a while because the second time we worked through this, the I believe that was draft two or three that we were reading. Um, you still had in the character list the doctor, like a, a an asterisk saying the doctor can be played by either gender. Mm -hmm. But there were multiple stage directions that popped up that said <laughs> she sits at her desk or the doctor looks at her notes. Well, and I'm like, well. It had to be written in some kind of way, right? <laughs> but, um, I just, no, I, I, I was just joking. I just no, think no, no. That, was, that was just amusing to me. Like, I think that this is a female. Yeah. So, um, yeah. so can you just set up the scene we're about to hear from Captive? Um, sure, sure. I, this is a new iteration for this, for this draft that I added in. Um, and I think it is working towards clearing up any questions that I have felt needed answered. Um, this is the tail end of conversation that Alice has with this other person in this place named Sarah. And, um, one thing that has come up in a lot of the readings that I won't go into too much to give too much away but there's a color system within this environment and the color system is representative of the stages of addiction. And so as they progress through this system, they're changed into these different, um, these different levels. And it's kind of the doctor's way of keeping track. And when you, when a person goes through addiction, you know, they have their initial use, they have their curiosity moment, their um, joining a group moment, their trying to fit in moment. And they, they try it for the first time. And after that, um, most times the way that that is um, continued for a person is through social use. And this idea of it being um, their friends are doing it so they do it. It's around when they're at their friend's house. It's this uh, social environment. So that is what the character Sarah produces for Alice. She comes in as this friend 
also why Sarah is a female. She comes in as this confidant that she is trying to approach um, Alice in a different way, trying to um, make friends with her, make her understand that they're all the same here. And, um, and so this is the tail end of Sarah sharing a story about herself, whether that be true or not, to Alice and Alice's reaction. Um, after the conversation, when Sarah leaves the room, she runs into Michael in the hallway. And this is the first and only time within the play where Alice is not present, where she is not able to hear the conversation going on. So both characters get to drop their... Um, uh, their masks in a way they're able to drop that facade that they put on for Alice and and be honest about their job that they're performing here and so it gives the audience um, a little bit more of a um, a view into the truth great let's take a listen and when we get back we're going to talk about a very exciting upcoming project from Elephant Room Productions I found something that showed me I didn't have to walk around feeling this pain all the time. I could just forget everything. I didn't have to think about the grief I was feeling. I could just push it from my mind. I didn't have to deal with responsibility or guilt, pain, loss, nothing. Nothing at all, actually. It was an escape. An escape from everything that burdened me. An escape from the constant pressures of daily life. The need to be perfect, to be different, unique, amazing. Everyone can just be numbed forever. That's what I found. Then I found it just wasn't something. Then I found it wasn't just something I could have sometimes. It was something I could have all the time. The way I lived. The way I behaved. A new person. A non-person. And I needed it. Oh, <laughs> Did I need it? I couldn't believe how much I needed to not need. How much I wanted to not want. To just little by little drift away into nothing. Have, have you ever felt that way, Alice? No. I'm not sure. You make that sound like such a romantic thing, but it's... If you aren't anything, then what's the point? Why would you want to be numb all the time? There are people who don't need this. Believe me, we all know them. There's people who have the ability to go on. It's baffling, really. They experience pain, rejection, loss, grief. The list goes on and on, and somehow, so they do. So do they. I don't understand it. I don't know strength like that. This isn't for everyone. This? You still don't get it, do you? You will. You have to accept where you are, Alice. It's who you are. It's who I am. How's the food? It's, uh, it's delicious, actually. I didn't realize how hungry I was. I ate so fast. Would you like some more? Um, I'm okay. I'm pretty full, actually. Okay. Well, I'll send some more up here for you in a little bit, then. Would you like to change into your new clothes now? I guess you have to stay for that, don't you? Yeah, I do. Thanks. Sarah hands Alice her new clothing. Alice changes clothes. 
It wasn't easy for me to accept my past at first either. But they say the first step to accept there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe the next time we meet, you'll be willing to give me a little more of yourself. I'll see you soon. Sarah gathers the two trays, bottled water, and old jumpsuit and exits the room, leaving Alice at the table. The lights shift off of Alice's room and towards the outside of the door where Michael is standing with a tray of food and a bottle of water and is met by Sarah. Once outside the room, Sarah's demeanor switches entirely. So how is she? She's fine. Is she regressing properly? She, yeah, she will. She has to. Well? It's just, she made connection with, with me. Weird, I know. I wasn't expecting her to respond to my story as compassionately as she did. Most of them just stay consumed in their own thoughts. But she did. So, I don't know. Maybe we need to up her dose. I guess just keep a close eye on her. Did she change her clothes? Yeah. <clears throat> I thought about it, but decided to do it anyway. Who knows, maybe she just responds more to women. You give it a try, you'll see what I mean. And Michael? Make sure she forgets. We don't need you-know-who coming in here fixing our mistakes. I know you can't afford another. No, I can't. So, she made connection with you? Selflessly and honestly. Wow. I know. I'm a little bit worried. Just means we need to step up our game with this one. Yeah, yeah, of course. You alright? What? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Really? When was the last time you ate? Uh, 20 minutes ago. Honestly, I'm fine. You can go. Okay. Whatever you say. Oh, and Michael? Just keep feeding her. It'll be fine. We get one like this every once in a while. You'll get used to it. Sarah takes her things and continues exiting down the hallway. Michael remains standing, staring intensely at the tray of food in his hands. Lights fade. And we're back. Uh, so we're going to move from addiction to another equally important topic, suicide, and talk about an upcoming project that has been kind of in the background of Elephant Room Productions ever since its beginning, Suicide Stories. Uh, so before we go into where we're going with this project and where we've come with it, can you just talk about the origin of the project? Sure, of course. Um... So, yeah, when we first started this company, Chris, Eloth, and I, we, um, we discussed what was important to us and why we wanted to create art and why we think it's important. And for us, it was always these very important topical issues. You know, art is wonderful that it can be entertaining, but it's just so much more, more than that to us as well as lots of artists out there. I mean, we all, we all do art for reasons. And um, uh, one topic that was very near and dear to our hearts as um, some of our elephants have had very, very close, unfortunate um, encounters with and experiences of loss um, is suicide. And it's also something that tends to be noticed for a moment and forgotten about for a lifetime. It's um, not by the people close to it, but it's something we can see stories about on the news and it's devastating for just a moment and then we quickly um, all become bystanders and um, and so it's something that we really wanted to talk about uh, in the beginning we had talked about different types of ideas for how to do this kind of project 
And it's just, it's grown into something so much more than we ever could have imagined in the beginning. Uh, it was something that we attempted to create uh, starting about a year ago. We've come into some, some different difficulties and through that have found um, just beautiful endings. So, uh, so yeah, we are in the process of making that a thing now. <laughs> Nice. What are the questions? Um, well, I was just gonna say, um, can we just talk about the original format? Because I remember this, just this title. Um, even before we kind of knew what we wanted to do with it or what it was, just the title "Suicide Stories" was around almost as early as Elephant Room Productions. It was mm -hmm. one of the first things we talked about. Um, I don't think we ever anticipated doing it in the first year, but we were talking about it in the first year right at the beginning um so can you talk a little bit about the process of starting conversation on it and where we uh tried to go with it initially yeah absolutely and the title was interesting because we we kept thinking like okay we'll come up with a catchier title we'll come up with something related to elephants we'll come up with like something catchier and as we continued to work on it what we were working on became so much more important than what we were trying to advertise which was the title and so it just stuck with Suicide Stories. I think it says it all. Well, I think it's kind of funny you say that because you there was a point, there was a company meeting about half a year in where we brought up Suicide Stories again. And I think you asked, I think you were definitely the one that brought it up. You said, you know, what are we going to call it? Is it called Suicide Stories? And my initial gut reaction was, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what it's yeah, called. That's, course, that's, that's what, what I, called. that's, I mean, it, it just, it, it something about it, like, Something about it just seemed, even before we knew what the format was, whether it was a play, whether it was monologues, whether it was real stories, we just, that simple of a title for such a complex, dramatic format and theme just seemed to fit. Yeah. And um, we thought about the project being really small as something like online, like a web, web, web series type thing. We thought about it being something really big, as big as like the Laramie Project, trying to incorporate interviews over a very long period of time. Uh, we all have also, when we were in school, a lot of us together have worked um, very closely with um, the Vagina Monologues and MMRP, a memory, a monologue, a rant, a prayer. And so this idea of these true testimonies being shown through monologues has always been really strong for all of us. We've always had really wonderful experiences with that. And so that went into part of the idea and um, and we we went into this idea of having it be this long process, and we thought that that would be really wonderful to collect stories over time and bring them to light after so many years. But we've run into like a couple of different things with that idea. One being, um, it's not that easy to get people to want to talk about their stories when you set it up in that kind of way, of that interview style. Some people did, and we, we have collected some, some really uh, touching stories, true testimonies, and some um, and we've run into some other kinds of difficulties with it as well. And um, I'm sorry, I'm totally losing my train of thought. That's okay. I, I was actually going to bounce off of that and ask why and what, what was the moment that we changed direction on this? And I think you kind of answered it with the difficulty in getting actual story getting people to talk about this um uh, from a personal note yeah it's hard to get people to want to talk about it. people that have really had that that raw um very close relationship with it um it's difficult to get them to want to talk about it and so we kind of uh 
uh, put the idea aside for a little while, and it's been brought up recently in sort of a new direction. We have been working on this Elephant Ears reading series for a while with these playwrights and bringing their work to the table, workshopping it and recording it, sending our work, our, our feedback to them and creating new drafts from there, doing workshops and, and stage readings and all this kind of stuff, developing pieces. So we thought, why don't we invite the playwrights that we've been working with to each write a monologue and they can choose the topic that they want to discuss. And so we have this whole list of topics that are common situations that happen when someone um, chooses to take their life. And, um, and so that was our first impression. But as we, as we continued to reach out to these playwrights, it was amazing and um, <laughs> kind of devastating at the same time how many of these playwrights had true personal testimonies that they wanted to discuss. I was like, yeah, I was actually just going to say there were, we were very recently to the date of this recording, read through the first batch of monologues for this project. And there are, uh, there are a couple that are not fictitious. There are a couple, uh, I believe all of them. I think all but two or three are completely true testimonies yeah. from a playwright's perspective. And even the ones that aren't still draw from some real yeah, I mean, I think that's something we found, too, when we brought this topic up at um, pop-up events, fundraiser events, with anyone, any stranger, that everyone has some kind of connection to suicide. And that just proves to the public how, how um, common this is, how immersed it is in our society. And, um, uh, like, I, I was actually, I was teaching a class today on, um, on goals and and stress and dealing with stress and what some people do to deal with their stress in unhealthy ways. And every single class of these seventh grade children brought up suicide and how they know someone who's committed suicide or they know what it feels like to have those thoughts. And I mean, that's a random sample of really young children. It's, 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 um, it's frightening how common this is in our society. And we talk about statistics. We talk about dates when they happen. We talk about the age the person was, we talk about how many children they had, or what job they had, or what education they had. We talk about all these different things about them, but we don't talk about the love, the, the feeling, the personality, the joy, the heartbreak. We don't talk about what's left behind. We don't talk about the person, the people surrounding this person who have to pick up the pieces. And, um, and so that's what Suicide Stories is really trying to do is bring light to not only the victims and their stories and making them these humanized people, not just these numbers and these um, news articles, but also the survivors. A lot of, most of our stories are focusing on the survivors, someone very close to the person who was deeply affected by what happened. And so I think that is what, um, why Suicide Stories has become such a unique project and it's something that we are all very, very, very excited to continue working on. Yeah, same. I'm, I'm really anxious to see where this goes, especially after the initial reading of the monologues, because there were so many, so many moments where you just had to take a step back, take a breath. Um, and can I just ask? We talked about the process for getting the playwrights um, through our ears readings and various other connections, but. 
Can you talk about how many playwrights we have and the various formats they've written in? Sure. We have about 10 playwrights right now. And like I said, most of them have chosen their own topics. I think only one, maybe two of them have been um, encouraged to write something because they they were open to anything, and which is also great. And uh, um, they're each written in monologue form. Um, they're about 10 to 15 minutes long, and I don't want to give too much away about the actual production because that's something you will have to come see because trust me, it's something that you're going to want to see. And uh, as far as formats, I mean, I think a, a, big, a big challenge that the playwrights were given is nobody wants to come to an event where they're going to be upset the whole time, you know? Um, and that is a challenge with suicide because it is such a devastating occurrence. And so I think a challenge that all of our playwrights have dealt with and succeeded at is finding the light in the darkness and finding some kind of, um, some kind of brighter moment within everything else. And I think another way that we are able to accomplish that with this product project is that we are incorporating a different art medium in addition to theater within every single piece. So, um, that can be some kind of physical expression of art. Um, some of it is um, like creative outlets that we all use. It's, it's really an interesting thing. Each monologue has its own theme of how this victim is explaining and expressing their story, not only through their words, but through um, some kind of action too. Yeah, just to bounce back to the themes of each piece, I was definitely impressed and surprised at how often I found myself smiling in these monologues. Mm. It is a very, very tough process um, to go through these stories. Um, and you do end up, I, I will say, I don't want to sugarcoat it, you do feel very raw after some of them. But there were definitely moments in the, even in the bleakest of stories that had me, that had me chuckle. There was something that brought me back to um, oh, I'm, I'm still, there, there is still something out there to smile at. And I think that's because, um, regardless of everything that we talk about, um, uh, something within every monologue is relatable to everybody. And I think that's what you'll find when you come see the show, um, which I think is really, really great. Mm -hmm. Well, Lauren, thank you so much for talking to me today about Suicide Stories. I am incredibly excited to be a part of this and to see where it's going to go. But... Let's shift gears and go back to a lighter topic to end our episode, since we've been talking about some very, very serious stuff today. Uh, I'm going to end, like I always do, with a fun little theater question for my guest. If you could share a drink with any character from any play, what would the character be, and what would the drink be? Okay, um... I have a dark interest in Twisted People, so I guess I would have to say who's a pretty... Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf? I would want to get a drink with Martha. <laughs> and it would... I, I would suggest just straight whiskey, but I feel like we would be drinking red wine. I don't know why, but I just feel like... We I could see be. her drinking red wine. And I feel like we would I could see her drinking whatever you put in front of her, to be I honest. I could see her, like, holding the bottle, forcing it to go down my throat to get me drunk because she's crazy. And then just... While singing Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf over and, <laughs> and over again. And then just the twisted dark craziness that would ensue would be very interesting and exciting. So, yeah, I'd probably say Martha. All right. Interesting question. You're actually now reminding me that I need to watch that movie again because <laughs> that is one of my favorite movies. Um, well, again, thank you so much for coming on today, Lauren. 
Uh, and to all of our listeners, you already know about ears, but now that we've brought another topic to the table, please keep checking our website and our Facebook for more info on suicide stories. Also, please keep an eye out because we will be looking for actors to audition come early May uh, for our fringe production of Suicide Stories. And as Ears is still going on, remember every story deserves to be heard. So email us if you have a play at erpsubmissions at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Robert Jean Pelleccio, and I want to thank, special last minute thank you to Arrow for being such a good boy during this recording. All right, have a good night, everybody. We will see you next time. like this hello everybody we listen to elephant room productions in the morning with bobby jean okay smooth jazz all right